0: All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. Uh, Andy had more... I kind of want to know what happens, um, or if it's over yet, or do I I not want to know? I'm getting like... shit. Okay. Well, now that's all I'll be thinking about, because (laughs) apparently I don't want to know about really bad news. Okay. Well, it's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, You know, it's funny. A lot of times people ask me... um, you know, did you always know you would be a pastor growing up? I'm actually kind of like the least likely pastor you would ever meet. Um, I thought I'd be like a, a football coach or a, um, I don't know, maybe like a, a business owner or an entrepreneur. And I, and I feel like I tend to actually read more kind of along those lines than I even do, um, you know, theology or philosophy. And um, I, over Christmas break, I got to do like a bunch of, of reading. And um w- one of the kind of the ideas that really struck me as I was reading over Christmas break as I was just thinking about the life of the summit and just, even for many of you, many of you are business owners and entrepreneurs as well, um, is that it's kind of counterintuitive, but that one of the most dangerous times in the life of any organization or business or church is actually in a time of tremendous success. Like it's, it's kind of weird, but it's, In, you know, if you're a business owner, what you should know is actually in the times that things are going best for you, that's actually one of the most dangerous times in the life of your organization. I know it sounds kind of of counterintuitive, but it it kind of works like this sort of uh, chain reaction. Here's kind of how it works. Um, It starts where we try really hard at something and we excel. Then uh, after we excel, uh, we are successful. When we get successful, we get prideful. When we get prideful, we tend to get stupid, and when we get stupid, we tend to do really stupid stuff. Uh, we've kind of all experienced this chain reaction in our own personal lives as well. And um, maybe, you know, if this isn't kind of landing with you yet, let me just kind of even um, give you some examples to help you wrap your mind around this. So back in 2010, for example, um, the owner of Segways, do you know what a Segway is? It's kind of like that, it's almost like an upright scooter um, that, you know, you wear the helmet and people are doing like the tours around downtown on their Segways, kind of looking to, you know, maybe get beat up if you're (laughs) riding one of those around downtown. And... um, And so the owner of Segway uh, back in 2010 was very, very vocal about uh, how Segways were the mode of transportation for humanity in the future. Like bikes are not as safe, walking is not as safe, driving a car is not as safe, no other means of transportation is quite as safe. The Segway is the safest, it is the wave of the future. And Segways became fairly well known, they're used in movies, they they are tremendously safe. But kind of ironically and sadly, back in 2010, the owner of Segway, Segway, kind of puffed up by his overconfidence in the safety of his Segway, actually drove off a cliff on his Segway to his death. Um, There's no kind of like Clever way to make that happier. It's just what happened and it kind of illustrates the point that I'm trying to make. Let's go with the happier one before you think about that one too much, okay? Um, Back in the early 2000s, there was this company called Lifelock. It's still around and, and Lifelock exists basically to protect people's identity, keep it from getting stolen. And in the early 2000s, they were kind of on the cutting edge of this. You know, identities get stolen on the internet and the internet's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they were killing it. I mean, they are knocking it out of the park. And the CEO of Lifelock kind got so uh, overconfident about how well he could protect people's identities, he launches this major ad campaign, you might remember it, where he not only puts his picture, uh, but also his personal information, like his date of birth and his social security number, on the sides of buses, benches, uh, billboards, basically challenging anybody and everybody to steal my identity. And you know what happened after a week? His identity was stolen 13 times, and they had to scrap the ad campaign before the company went out of business. And so over and over again, you kind of see this cycle where, uh, you know, we start off, we do well, we get successful, we get prideful, we get stupid, and we do really stupid stuff. Now, the reason I start with that is because as I think about our organization, the Summit Church, uh, 2013 was an incredibly successful year for us. We, uh, we about doubled in size. I think we grew somewhere around 85% uh, numerically. Uh, We experienced tremendous life change. Many of you in this room right now, um, when you think where you were a year ago, you were in a tremendously different place. You weren't just in a different place. You were a completely different person. And and many of those stories are, are filling this room. Um, we've seen many of you uh, really have your heart break uh, for the city. And we saw people just kind of tangibly make an impact for felt needs in the city, kind of all over the place. Uh, we saw the church actually buy this building and the building in front of it. And if you told me at the beginning of 2013, we would own not one, but two buildings in the heart uh, of the urban core of Denver, I would have said, you know, that's going to take more than a miracle, uh, but God gave, it to that, gave us that as well. And so uh, 2013 was a year of tremendous success for us as a church. And, and it's not that we, you know, we, we're scared of success. It's, it's not that we uh, avoid it. We will continue to relentlessly pursue success as a church and an organization, but we want to learn from those who preceded us and, and say, like, wisdom challenges us to, to be good stewards of success. And we don't want to kind of fall into the normal cycle where we work hard, we get successful, we get prideful, we get stupid, and then we do really stupid stuff. And so I think really at the beginning of the year, it's a great time for us to to return to the vision and values that have made us great as an organization in the first place. Now, the, the way that we're going to do this is we're going to take three weeks to look at the four verses we just read from Jeremiah 29, four through seven. Now, these aren't just kind of any four verses, but Andy kind of touched on this. These are, uh, for me personally, life-changing verses, as well as for our church. Our church was birthed really out of the vision that's given in Jeremiah twenty-nine four through seven, and, and kind of even to help you understand the backstory of this. Back in the winter of two thousand nine, I know that was a long time ago. Uh, I was in grad school. My beard was nothing but peach fuzz and, and stubble, um, and I was trying to figure out. In the fall of two thousand, I was living in North Carolina, or in the winter of two thousand nine, I was I was living in North Carolina and going to grad school. And I was trying to figure out, what am I going to do with my life? Have you ever, like, wrestled with that question? Like, yeah, so we've all wrestled with this question. What are we going to do with our lives? Am I going to move overseas? Am I am in a new city? Like, I really love baking. Should I open a bakery? Um, I'm not talking about me thinking that. Um, you know, some of you probably have hypothoth- that hypothetically thought that before. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. And, and I go to this conference at my school, and, and I hear this guy talk. Um, from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, he talks about an hour, and he talks about how um, this vision could potentially come alive, um, not just only in our lives, but in, 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 the, in the core of cities that we love so much. And, and I've never had an experience where God's like audibly spoken to me, or, you know, it wasn't like I stared up at the ceiling and said like, Brian, go plant a church in Denver. Um, I, I've never had an experience like that. But what I do remember uh, um, was that after that hour, I, I had a sense of clarity and calling in my life that... Just wasn't there before. And I knew what I wanted to give my uh, life to. And really, I think the birth of the Summit Church's vision uh, really took place um, in that moment. And so I feel like, kind of in light of the success and in light of how dangerous success can be, um, what's better to do than to return to the the passage that kind of formulated what we do and and why we do it uh, as a church? Now, tonight, um, what we're going to look at. Is the calling in this passage? Let me get the the light here. The calling in this passage to be rooted in uh, the city to be to be rooted in the city. And hopefully this is not new language. This was kind of the major thrust uh, of 2013, that we were going to be a church that puts down roots, that exists in the city of Denver for the good of Denver for multiple generations. But more than anything, what I want you to see was, it wasn't like I read a book and it was like, we should do this. It wasn't like I just wanted... This is a biblical vision God gives his people in cities. And I want you to see it from Jeremiah. Now, uh, this book, Jeremiah, is a big book. It is, um, I think... 1,000, I'm not just doing this all the time I had, I, I read this this week, so I'm trying to remember it, 1,364 verses long, and we are going to read four of them, okay? So it's kind, of, it's kind of important for us to understand the larger context of what's taking place in the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was written 550 BC, that's around 550 years before Jesus was born, and it was written by a guy named Jeremiah. Yes, you guessed it. And Jeremiah was a tough guy. He was a prophet. He was a man's man, grizzled. But he, he kind of got this nickname called uh, the weeping prophet. And the reason he was called the weeping prophet is because he wept so much for the task that God had given him. The task that God gave him was that he was called to go to the people of God and warn them for, warn them for leaving the ways of God. So he would go to the people of God, and he would warn them for leaving the, the ways of of God. And so he would go to them and he would say, Okay, you guys got, you better stop this. And, and, and they would say, No. And he'd say, well, You better stop this. And they would laugh. And he'd say, You better stop this. And they would mock. he said say, You better stop this. And they would say, You're right. We should stop this. We're so sorry. And then they would do it again the next weekend, over and over and over again, until eventually they reaped what they had sown and the city was sacked. It was taken by a group of people called the Babylonians. The Babylonians. Now, stay with me. This is all relevant. It's important, okay? Now, here's the deal is that you don't really have to have a whole lot of familiarity with the Bible to at least have some notion that the Babylonians are bad people, right? Many of you are just like, "I, I wasn't sure if they existed or not, but I do know that they're bad. In fact, a few weeks ago, I went to the Broncos Raiders Monday night football game and I don't know if you've ever seen like a Raiders fan but like all of them look exactly alike and I was like that's what a Babylonian would have looked like as they were ransacking cities like tremendously scary just got out of prison looks on all of their faces that's what a Babylonian would have looked like according to the history books that I read or at least my own personal opinion and they go in to the city of God and they take it over they run it over and they don't just rule it from afar they actually take the people back to their own city of Babylon okay so they don't just rule it from afar they actually go they uproot the people and they take them to the city of Babylon and all of that is happening as the people come to this portion of Jeremiah and they're trying to answer the question what does it look like for us to do life as the people of God in a city that's not our home what does it look like for us to take our faith seriously in an environment where we're not encouraged to take our faith seriously. That, that's all that's leading up. And, and Jeremiah 29, 4-7 through 7 is God's answer to them. Now, here's what I want you to do. As hard as this may be, I want you to try the hardest that you can to put yourself in these people's places, okay? So, so I want you to imagine um, you have been, your city has been attacked, your family has been mostly killed, your possessions have been taken, you have been taken to a city that is not your home, you had to learn a new language, there's a whole new you know, school system, and it's crazy. Now, here's the question I want to ask you, is if you're in this place, and you ask God, what does it look like for me to do life here? I mean, what are you hoping he responds with? Like, what would you hope that he says as an answer? Here's kind of what I thought. Um, one, I would love for him to say, here's the deal, I'm going to kill everybody. And as I'm killing everybody and distracting everybody, you make it out the back and you get back home as quickly as possible. You know what I would love for him to say? I would have said, look, here's the deal, I can't get you guys out right now, it's just kind of the way things are going to go in history, but if you could complain as much as possible about how much you dislike life here, preferably on social media, so it's broadcast to as many people as possible, then like, I can do that. Like, I'm really good at thinking negatively, I'm really good at complaining, I can do that. What would you hope that he says to you? And I want you to, he didn't say that, right? Here's what he writes, starting in verse uh, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So here's what God is saying. The God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, that's a key word, sent, wasn't an accident, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you're supposed to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so do you see kind of the repetition of themes that's happening? Okay, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. It'd be like him saying, okay, buy a house. Build a house. Sign a really long term lease. Don't just go month to month so you can get out of here as quickly as possible. Verse 5. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Stay here a long time. So in order to kind of be able to live off the land, that's going to take some time for you to plant those seeds, for them to bear fruit. I mean, it's, so, so think long term. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son. Give your daughters in marriage. They may have sons and daughters. What he's saying is get married here. Start a family here. Don't just start a family here, but raise your children here. Have a vision to be a grandparent in this city. And what he's telling them then is not to, as, as they're thinking about this city, is not to hate the city, not to criticize the city, not to complain about the city, but to put down roots in the city. And to love the city, to have that be the posture of their hearts towards the city. Not to hate, not to criticize, not even to kind of get a nice uh, two-year experience, but to say, this city is now my home. And what I love about this is, you know, I mean, if it's me... if I'm thinking like these people, what I most want from God is, how, how do you get me out of here as quickly as possible? How do you make things easy for me as quickly as possible? You know what God gives them? He gives them something so much greater. He gives them a multi-generational vision for their lives. A multi-generational vision for their lives to say, not, not only this is how you're going to live, but this is how you're going to die. This is the great cause to which you are meant to give your life to. And simply put, here's what I want you to see, is that everything that we talked about last year as a church, to put down roots in the city for multiple generations, has grown out of this call of God on Christians in the city. To so look at a city like Denver. Denver's, Denver's not like Babylon. It's not a hard city to love. But to look at a city like Denver, And to say, I'm not just here for like a couple years for school. I'm not just here for kind of this neat experience where like I can go skiing and I can see pro football in the exact same day. And isn't that wonderful? But to say like, this is not just a city or a cool city. This is my city. This is our city. And I'm not just going to come and I'm not just going to take from it. But I'm going to give my life to it. The call remains the same. And here's the deal. I understand that some of you are maybe new, and this sounds weird, and I'm going to explain this. Um, I understand for some of you, um, you might still, you know, when, when you, I mean, commitment scares you. That's kind of a four-letter word in itself. And then when you start talking about, like, lifelong commitment, it's like, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? Um, we'll talk about that. But before I even want to like, explain this or defend this, more than anything, I want to celebrate this. I want to celebrate that last year, this is what we asked God for, and he gave it to us. He gave it to us beyond what we could have ever asked or imagined. It was kind of this crazy vision to say, like, what would it look like for us to shift in our vision of what Denver is going to be, and, and to see all that he did, all that he did to make this dream a reality. And So we want to just celebrate. We want to thank God. like, Thank you, Jesus, for doing this in the life of... Of our church, But not only that, but I want to thank you as well. I mean, many of you, you shifted your vision in terms of how you approach the city. Many of you bought homes and signed long-term leases and, and even said no to, like, better job opportunities where you could make more money somewhere else in the middle of nowhere. And you said no, like, God has called me to this church, to this mission, to this community, to this city. And you, you, you took tangible steps to make that happen. Many of you gave unbelievably sacrificially. It cost you very, very much for us to be able to purchase this building in the fall. And so we don't want to just say, like, do more, try harder. We want to say thank you. Thank you. And what I hope is that when you look, I mean, especially for those of you that were with us a year ago, and you remember kind of where we were, this small little kind of thing that was on, you know, only was using half of this building and you look at all that God did in the past year, I pray that your faith would expand and that you would look at God and you would say, he is the God who like a good dad delights in giving gifts to his children, particularly when they align with his mission and vision for the world. And don't you see, this is a biblical vision that God has given us, and he is doing it. And don't lose sight of that. See that he is doing it, and he has done it. And let it expand your faith of what he can do in and through you, and in and through our church in 2014. Now, let's go back then to kind of think about this. Like, okay, well, what what does this look like? Like we said, um, I mean, even kind of this gift that God gave is... um, you know, he doesn't tell them to leave. He gives them the gift of a multi-generational vision for their lives. And, and I remember really experiencing, you know, let's go back to that February of 2009 where I heard this taught for the very first time. I remember um, in that moment, um, not, I mean, that's kind of a big concept, right? Like multi-generational vision for, for my life. Um, so, so let's kind of break it down. Um, if that person's calling to tell us that the Broncos won. That's totally cool. Um <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's no problem at all. We're, like, super relaxed here. Um, um, what was I going to say? What was I talking about? Hopefully you're tracking with me. Okay, yeah, yeah. Back in the winter of 2009, I feel like I should pull up my armchair and, like, you know, feel like an old grandpa telling stories. Back in the winter of 2009, um, I remember getting this, like, multi-generational vision from my life. And really, I think what, you know, kind of let's put some flesh on this. What particularly happened in my own life... Um, Was that two changes took place? Kind of two major changes took place as as I was trying to kind of wrap my mind around this. Um, The first was this: the first was that, this will make sense, but my, my clock was changed. My my clock was changed. And I'm borrowing that term um, from the CEO of Amazon.com is a guy named Jeff Bezos. And um, I was reading this article recently about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos gave, I think, about $46 million to build a clock. Now, when I heard this, I thought to myself, like, is this clock also a spaceship? Um, Does it, I mean, like, I gotta see this thing, right? $46 million for a clock. And it turns out that what Jeff Bezos wanted to do was he wanted to give this money to build a 10,000-year clock. And and so I looked at it, and I looked closely at it, and um, on the face of the clock, it looks like any other clock, but as I looked really closely, the the long hand, you know, the minute hand on the face of a watch was not a, a minute hand, it was actually a decade hand. So, like, the thing only ticked every 10 years. I was like, that's really weird. And so uh, I read some interviews. Why did he do this? And he said the big reason he did this, um, I'm not sure if it was worth $46 million to make this point, but it's a powerful one, and I'll steal it, um, is is that in our culture, all we're encouraged to do is to think for the now. And he wanted to give some sort of kind of tangible challenge for, for people in our society to think long about their lives, to change their clocks. And, and this is the way it is, right? We are encouraged to think about the now. And so companies will advertise to you, basically saying like, you don't have to put any money down to buy this car. And you're like, man, that like sounds like a fantastic deal. Don't worry about like the crazy amounts of interest. Don't worry about the crippling fees. Don't worry about the fact that I'm going to end up paying like $55,000 for a 1998 Honda Accord after like this whole thing is said and done. I mean, it's like, I get a car right now. We, we approach this way in our relationships a lot of times, right? Like, I don't want to be alone now. I don't want to be alone tonight. I don't want to be alone uh, this holiday season. I don't want to go to those office parties alone. And so we'll return then to a bad, unhealthy relationship that we know isn't going to go very well for us because uh, we don't want to be alone now, never mind the fact that, you know, we're, we're nowhere on the path of having the, the healthy family environment that we so deeply uh, desire, We kind of practice this in a rhythm in our everyday lives. We, we kind of practice according to, you know, one of the, the, the most uh, verbal, I'm not sure if greatest, but one of the most verbal uh, philosophers of our time, Kesha. She says, let's, you, know, let's, I, I, you know, let's live like we're going to die young. And then you listen to the rest of her lyrics and you're like, I'm not sure if like, that's the way I want to architect my life. I mean, that's, what, that's the way now living, that's the thinking that now living produces. And, and what, what, what Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 pushes us to is to change. Our clocks to start thinking along, to think not just like minute to minute day to day weekend to weekend but year to year decade to decade generation to generation and I'm telling you I'm not kind of like throwing stones I live in a glass house with this too it's very hard it's very hard. I mean for me I very much it's hard for me to think beyond uh, the next upcoming weekend and what we can do and where we can go but but. God calls us to think long. This passage, it liberates us from living underneath the tyranny of the second hand and empowers us to think long about our lives. In fact, maybe another way to put this is that what this passage, Jeremiah 29, four through seven, challenged me to do and it challenges you to do as well is to live your life this year with the end in mind. In fact, there's this guy named, Jonathan Edwards, who he was, he was a pastor back in the 1700s. And when he was 19, he was trying to kind of like figure out what is he going to uh, build his life upon. And, and, and one of his resolutions was that he said, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Basically, basically he said that as we are setting up our lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, Like, am I going to be thankful, glad, um, regretful that I live this way in 2014 when I come to to breathe my final breath? Now, um, that's a good question to ask, but it's a little bit intense. It's a little bit morbid. And um, I mean, the vast majority of you in this room, you're very young. You, know, you all CrossFit. You all eat paleo. So it's not like you're going to die like in the next five years. I mean, you've got a long time. So so maybe, let me just pose this to you then. I mean, maybe not even so much as like the deathbed question, as much as it is like the three-year question. Like three years from now, like will you be glad that, you were living the life that you're living right now. So like, parents, you know what three years from now is? January 2017. Now when I hear January 2017, I think to myself like, wait, that's like when there were going to be the flying cars and the hoverboards, and I mean that seems so science fiction in the future, but it's right around the corner. And for you who are parents, and the reality is, is in three years, like, That kid in your home is going to take a significant step away from just being a child or a baby towards being an independent, responsible adult. Terrifying, I know. And that child in your home, I mean, like that baby could be in school then. That toddler could be approaching middle school by then. That middle schooler could be in high school. That high schooler could be approaching college. And, and the way that you're living right now and architecting your life is it established with a vision of who that child is going to be and what your family is going to be about three years from now. It's the same way for those of you who uh, are single, dating, uh, mar- I mean, married without kids. I mean, the, the reality is, is three years from now. E- even for those of you who are single and you're not even connected to anybody. It would be so easy for you in January 2017 not just to be married but to have a child as well. And you've got to think about your life. I mean, to think critically and to think long and to say, okay, like the type of man I am right now, the type of woman that I am right now, the way I handle my money and the way that I handle my time and my relationship with the church will have a profound impact on what type of family environment I create in January 2017, if that's what God has for you. It's the same way some of you here that doesn't interest any of you, but maybe you're just here, and you're, like, not where you want to be spiritually, and so maybe that means you're not a Christian, and exploring Christianity, uh, maybe that means you're looking for a church, uh, maybe it means you just moved to the city, and so you're kind of, like, trying a lot of different things, and, you know, tonight was church night, and on Tuesday, there'll be the running club at Wahoos, where you get a free um, fish tacos, if you finish the 5k, that's a real thing, so um, you're welcome, and... Um, And you're kind of trying to figure out, like, what am I going to make my life about? And I would just challenge you to have a vision three years into the future and to say, like, okay, well, what are the practical things I need to be doing right now to ensure that I am the person, I am the husband, I am the dad, I am the friend, I am the employee, I am the church member that God calls me to be. And this passage, it liberates us to start thinking that way and not live underneath the tyranny of people who are just trying to survive at best, weekend to weekend, experience to experience, but to think long, to think long. Now, the second thing that happened to me was not only was my clock changed, um, but also my story was rewritten. And um, I don't wanna go about this. Yeah, we'll go this way. Um, I, let's just be honest. I think all of us, whether we realize it or not, have a certain story that we were expected to live. Um, From our environment, from our upbringing, from the things that we watch on TV, we we were called to live, not called, encouraged to live a certain story. So let me give you a few examples in my own life, and um, this is just this is largely Americans, especially middle class Americans as a whole, which is where many of you come from. I, it would have been very very easy, it would have been very natural to live a story of prosperity, where like the most important question that I'm asking myself in terms of like w- what do I do with my life is largely based around okay like where can I make. The most money. I don't care what the cost is. Where can I make the most money? It would be very easy for me to live a, a life centered around ease. Like, where can life be as easy as possible? It would have been very natural for me to live a life that was centered around safety. Like, where can I live so that I'm never put in harm's way whatsoever? For some of you can relate to that in other way, other people. You have completely other stories that you were, were, were encouraged to live. I'll tell you what this passage does. What it it challenges us to do is to write a different story with our lives. So start having a, when we start thinking along, this is where it's connected, to start thinking along and ask ourselves, what if I wrote a different story than, I'm just throwing this out there, but it's a typical Denver story. Um, Just moving here to the city because it seemed like a cool place to live, getting a couple years of experience, taking from the city, kind of sucking up all my experiences from the city like a mosquito, and then after I got my fill, like I fly off somewhere else to another city that's really cool and do the exact same thing there. Like what if, What if I put my roots down deep and I ask myself what kind of impact that could be made in and through me, that God can make in and through me by planting my life in one place, even if it's not easy and even if it doesn't lead to the greatest amount of prosperity I could ever enjoy, and even if it's not safe at times. And I'll tell you, this passage, it radically changed me to evaluate, evaluate what am I living for? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about these storylines of prosperity and safety and ease is that at the center of all of them is me. It's me. And, and, And even before I was a Christian, that always felt hauntingly insufficient hauntingly inadequate to have the great cause to which I gave my life be nothing more than my own personal happiness. And to take a step back and to say, what am I living for? And what I love, not just about this passage, but the fulfillment of this passage in the person of Jesus Christ, is that he modeled this, he lived this, he demonstrated this. Jesus Christ is the one who moves into the neighborhood. He doesn't just move into the neighborhood of humanity, which is pretty jacked up, if you haven't kind of identified that yet. He chooses to move into the particular neighborhood of humanity in the Middle East, which which has not historically been a bastion of safety, comfort, and ease. And he moves into this neighborhood, and he gives his life to them. He says, I'm committed to you, to your good, even to the point of death and and that's ultimately what it means he gives his life he gives his life not just in some sort of kind of like sweet symbolic way like man he really gave his life that uh, he actually gives his life he is arrested crucified killed by the very neighbors he came to save and yet he was praying for them and loving them in the midst of his execution and what the cross of Jesus Christ enables us to do is, it doesn't just save us. He empowers us to be men and women who demonstrate that same sort of radical, countercultural, semi-crazy commitment to a city like this, and to say, "Look." I will love you whether you love me. I will love you whether you hate me. I'll be committed to you whether you love me. I'll be committed to you whether you hate me. Because it's when you have this vision to say, here's what God can do over a lifetime, over generations. Here's what God can do if I put my roots down deep. There's no limit to what he can do. Look, here's the deal. What I'm not saying is like, okay, so let me just be really clear here. Um, What what I'm not saying, like, if you move away from Denver, there's something wrong with you. Like, we've never felt that as a church. We've never felt like, hey, I get another job opportunity or, uh, you know, I wanted to move somewhere else. I've got family back here. None of those things are evil in themselves. But we've always wanted to challenge you to ask the question, why? Why leave? And ultimately, what is the primary driving motivation behind your place, the place in which you plant your life? I'm telling you, if it's you, if it's me, if it's me at the center of the story of my life, it will continue to feel hauntingly insufficient and inadequate. It will. And what I love about This passage and the fulfillment of it by Jesus Christ as he shows that he is meant to be the main character. He is the author. He is is the hero of the story of my life and yours. And your heart will feel empty until you realize it and start living that way and start making that the great cause of your life. And so what do you need to do? That's, That's maybe just what I would ask you. In light of a challenge like this where we see that we are challenged to start thinking long about our lives. Where well, We have the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that enables us to write a different story with our lives. What is it that you need to do? I want to challenge you to just think specifically about what action steps you need to take in the new year so that at the end of 2014, you are taking a significant walk down the path towards the goodness and prosperity and the love that God desires for your life in the gospel. So I don't know what that means. I mean, maybe it means then just as like some of you here are on the kind of on the, the cusp of Christianity, and maybe it's like okay by the end of January. I'm going to figure out, like, am I really in or am I out? Is this thing legit? I'm going to have a conversation with somebody. I'm not just going to kind of have, like, my, you know, internal objections. I won't bring them up to anyone other than people that agree with me, but I'll actually talk to, like, maybe some people that could challenge me. We would love to have that conversation with you. Maybe it means you think differently about just, like, your priorities here in the city. You say, I'm going to commit to this church and love this church, and I'm going to be a good member at this church. Maybe it means you think differently about why you even live here. What I love about this passage is that God sent these exiles into the city. And some of you, you probably moved here. You probably think you moved here because, like, the skiing is great. You probably think you moved here because of a job opportunity. You probably think you moved here because weed was pretty much legal when you moved here. You may think you moved here because... I don't know why you think you moved here, but here's what I believe. I believe with my whole heart, God sent many of you here to do exactly what Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 calls us to do. And maybe it's just you asking, just cracking open your heart just a little bit to that possibility. I'm not saying you sign on the dotted line and say, I'm here in 2051, but say, I'm open to that possibility. I'm going to start making some commitments and I'm going to start giving my whole life away to the cause I was meant to give my life away to. So, We thank God for what he's done. We thank you for what you've done. Um, We're excited to keep working through this passage. Um, But God, put down roots somewhere. And we think here is a great, great place to do it. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you so much for being that good dad who gives us exactly what it is that we asked for last year. And we understand that... A lot of times there are ungranted requests. We understand that a lot of times um, we don't get what we want. But God, expand our faith to believe that more often than not, you are the God who moves, especially when we are asking according to your will for this city. And so God, I pray that we would be a people who continue to ask, and we continue to live, and we continue to give, and we continue to sacrifice believing that your word is true. God, let this passage continue to be a foundation upon which we build ourselves. Let us be a people who are rooted in the city for the good of the city for multiple generations. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.